All right, how's everybody doing today? Welcome to Metro. Hey, so we're in the middle of this series called Enemy, you know that, and we've been talking about this idea that we are in the middle of a spiritual battle in life, right? Now, one thing you know about battles is whenever there's a battle, there's a winner and there's a loser. Anybody like to win? Anybody in the house like to win? I I can tell you, for me, I love to win. Anybody who knows me knows I want to win at everything I do. And some of this goes back to my childhood, because when I was a kid, I never won. I would lose at everything. I had older brothers. Anybody in the room have older brothers? I had all older brothers. I was the baby of five boys. And this was terrible growing up if you wanted to win at anything, right? I I was always the youngest. I had four older brothers. The closest in age to me was two years older. And if that wasn't bad enough, I was always unusually short for my age. I know that's hard to believe, but it's true. I was always unusually short for my age, and so nobody else in my family was really short like me. Like, it was weird. I was the short, the short one and the baby, both at the same time, which means I lost at everything. I lost at football. I lost at baseball. I lost at basketball. I lost at soccer. I lost at everything. I even lost when it came to taking a bath. Now, this is going to be kind of gross, and so I need to know, if if anybody else experienced something like this when you were a kid, I need you to come up and tell me afterward, because I think I'm probably the only one. My family did not have a lot of money when we were growing up, and so we would always, uh, nobody could take a bath, like anytime you'd fill the water up in the bathtub, you had to always take at least two baths with one round of bath water. So since I was always the youngest, I never got to go first. And so here's what would happen is my brother would take a nice, hot, clean bath, and I would have to take a bath in his cold, dirty bath water. I'm not even joking. I don't think I was ever clean when I was a kid growing up. It was horrible. But I would lose all the time. And so I just grew up, like, never being able to win at anything. And it was so depressing. I mean, I I remember... uh, Finally, one day, like, wiffle ball was one of those things that I loved to play with my brothers, and I would always lose until finally one day I finally won. It was like the greatest day of my life, you know, when I finally won at something. But I can tell you one thing that did to me growing up, like losing all the time, it did develop some determination to me. Like, I'm not a quitter. If I'm anything, I'm not a quitter. Like, I wouldn't give up, you know, and so I kind of still have that to this day. Not that I have little man syndrome or anything, so don't think about that. Uh, But the fact is... I never wanted anything, and, and so this is just kind of how life is sometimes, isn't it? Like, one of the things that makes life on planet Earth so frustrating, I think, is that it feels like a lot of the time we're losing. Doesn't it feel that way sometimes? Like, you're losing at life, like you're losing in your friendships, you're losing with your parents, you're losing with your kids, you're losing with your marriage, you're just losing, you're losing with your job, your finances. It just feels like sometimes we just can't seem to get ahead. We lose more than we win in life. And if you're honest, I think we can all agree, like, we don't win as often as we'd like. Things are not going great or perfect in any way, shape, or form sometimes in our lives. And it can be frustrating and disappointing sometimes. And it's one of the things that makes life on planet Earth, I think, so frustrating. I think, and whether you're a believer in Jesus or not, you just have to admit that life can be pretty hard sometimes. It feels sometimes like there's just something against you, you know? It really does. Like, it, and it goes way deeper than just what's happening on the outside of us, I think. Many times it just feels like even on the inside that something's just not working the way it should. You know, we're filled in the, in the recesses of our hearts sometimes. I think if we're honest, we're a little bit unsettled, we're unpleased, we're unsatisfied, and we're just flat out disappointed. 
And this can be how, how life is sometimes. And, and, and if you really stop and think about this, something is clearly wrong. Something's clearly broken in this world that we live in. And it's not just the world that we live in. If we're honest, something seems to be broken with us. We seem broken. We can never quite find what we're looking for. Every day's a struggle. Every day's a battle. Every day's a fight. And if you feel this way, join the club. Right? This is just how the world is. It's really how it is. And so we've been looking at this, that, that this is the world we live in. We live in a battle zone. This is a struggle. The life we live is a struggle. We really are in the middle of a spiritual war where, where there, there's a battle going on and someone's going to win, someone's going to lose. And, and, and so Pastor Jeremy's been introducing us to this over the past couple of weeks. And he's got, had a couple of key Bible passages that he's looked at that he's really kind of pointed to. And one of them is this. This is from Ephesians chapter 6. Listen to this. It says, our struggle. Let's just pause there for a minute. Our struggle. This is life right here. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so you look at this, and and, and it immediately becomes clear to you, like, according to the Bible... Life is war. Life is a struggle. Life should feel like a struggle because that's exactly what it is. If you live on planet Earth, you live in the middle of a war zone. There's a spiritual battle raging around us all the time. And that's what this, this series is about. We have spiritual enemies who are against us. In this passage, they're called the rulers, the authorities, the powers, the spiritual forces of evil... Another name for them is Satan and his demons. But listen, these, these enemies that we have, they're very real. And they hate you and they want to destroy you. And this is why every day of your life feels like such a battle, feels like such a struggle. Because it is. Life is war. But the question is, like, if that's true, if life is a battle, if life is a struggle, what are we fighting for? You ever wonder that? You just ask yourself that question. Is all of this really worth it? Like, what are we fighting for? Why does life have to be such a struggle all the time? And the answer the Bible gives is a very clear, compelling, simple answer. You are fighting for your soul. This is what life on planet Earth is all about. There's a battle going on, and the battle is for your soul. Now, I don't know if you know this, but you have a soul. I don't know if you ever spend much time thinking about this, but there is a part of you that exists that is different from your body. Like, there's a reason why when you go to a funeral, that body is there, but the person is not there anymore. There's a part of you, an immaterial part, your soul, the Bible calls it, that God made you with. God created you to be a living soul. Way back in the very beginning, when God created mankind, it says he breathed on us and he he made us living souls. It's what makes humanity different from all other things on the planet, on the face of the earth. We have a soul, and here's the thing to understand about a soul. A soul is created. Its purpose, what it's made for, is to connect with God. And you have one. There's a part of you that its purpose, it was created to connect with God. This is probably the most fundamental thing to understand about humanity. It's this, that we were made by God and for God. God made us for himself. 
We were made to find everything we desire in relationship with God. You think about this for a minute. There's a reason why humans are the way they are. There's a reason that we have a craving for love deep in the recess of our heart. We have a craving for love is because God, God's love is unmatched. He made us for his love. God made us with a desire for beauty because his beauty is unlike any other. He made us with a desire for pleasure because his pleasures are unparalleled. He made us with a desire for adventure because there is no adventure like doing the will of God. God made this part of you for himself. All these desires that you have inside of you, the human heart, right? It has all these desires, these longings. And the reason those longings are there is because you were made for God. And these are all the things that God is and desires to share and give with us. Our souls were made to be satisfied in relationship with God. And and, and here's what happens. The minute we look for satisfaction somewhere other than God, something inside of us shrivels up and dies. And this is where we live every day. This is what's wrong inside of us. This is where the battle rages. It's a battle for our hearts. It's a battle for our souls. The question basically is this, is where are you going to look for satisfaction in life? All the things that you're longing for, all the things that you're looking for in life, where are you going to look? Are you going to look to God? Are you going to look somewhere else? And this is what the battle is for. If we look for satisfaction in God, we win. If we look for satisfaction somewhere else, we lose. And and this is the way the Bible paints the picture of life. It, It really does come down to this. It really does get this simple and basic. The whole life that we live, everything that you look at, everything about planet Earth and your place in it comes down to this one question. Where are you going to look to find the satisfaction that you're searching for? And you only have two options. You can either look to God or you can look someplace else. This brings us around two very big and important biblical words for a moment. We've got to dial in here for a minute, so you've got to track with me on this. There are two words that you have to understand what they mean if you're ever going to come to grips with what God wants from us in the Bible. Those two words are faith and sin. Here's what I think. If you really try to figure out what is faith according to the Bible, here's what I think it is. Faith is looking for satisfaction in God. That's what faith is. Sin is looking for satisfaction somewhere other than God. So these are the two ways to live your life. You can live by faith or you can live in sin. Faith is when you look for satisfaction to God. Sin is when you look for it someplace else. Here's the way God himself put it in the book of Jeremiah. This is God defining what he's looking for from us. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, it puts it like this. It says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So you see the picture here, right? Is that that God says, I am the spring of living water. Now, what's a spring of living water for? Spring of living water doesn't need anything. You don't have to give anything to it. You don't have to earn something from it. The only thing you have to do with a spring of, of, of water is be thirsty. And come for a drink. God says, I am the spring of living water. 
Come to me and drink. I will quench your thirst. I made you with these desires. Come to me and be satisfied. God himself wants to be the love that you search for. He wants to be the joy and the peace and the pleasure and the adventure that you search for. He says, I am the spring of living water. Come and drink. My people committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water. They've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold any water. Faith is when you look at God and you believe, when he says, I'm the spring of water, I'll I'll quench your thirst. Faith is when you believe that and you live your life based on it. Sin is when you don't believe and you look for a drink someplace else. And these are the two ways. When you turn away from God, you sin when you believe that you can find more love, more beauty, more pleasure, more adventure someplace other than God. The problem is when you turn someplace other than God for what you're searching for in life, all these other things that you turn to are broken cisterns that can't hold any water. Oh, you can put water in the bucket for a minute, but the problem is there's a hole in the bucket, and the bucket leaks. And before you know it, there's no water, and you're left empty. And this happens every time. And if you've been alive long enough, you know this is true. Every place you look, you get a moment of what you're searching for, but then it's gone. God says, I'm the spring of living water. Everything else is a broken cistern that can't hold water. And this is the explanation for everything that's broken. Everything that's broken in your life. This is the explanation for the hole that we find in our hearts. We're looking for a drink somewhere other than God. And there's a hole in the bucket. And it's leaking. Satan, his, his whole goal, his whole game that he plays, Satan wants you and I to look somewhere other than God for the satisfaction we're searching for. Satan wants you to look to pornography or sex. He wants you to look to money or possessions. He wants you to look to family and friends. He wants to do whatever it takes to take your heart away from God and get you to seek satisfaction in the people, the pleasures, the possessions of this world. And this is Satan's whole game. He wants you to exchange the creator for the creation because if he can do that, if he can convince you there is something better than God, there's something else to turn to, if he can convince you to do that, he destroys your soul because your soul was made for God. The minute you look someplace else, something inside of you shrivels up and it dies. And this is what Satan is trying. Now, this idea of having a choice of where to look for satisfaction, God or something else, this is the way it's been from the very beginning. This is the choice that God gave us when he made us. This is really it. This is the fabric of life right here, this choice that gets put before you. You've got God and you've got everything else. Choose. It's been this way from the beginning. When God created the first man and woman, we all, we all know the story, right? Adam and Eve, God creates them. He puts them in the garden. Says he can eat from any tree in the garden, but then all of a sudden he puts this one tree in the middle of the garden, and he says, but don't eat from this one. And he puts a choice before them. This is what God does. He, he makes us, he puts us here, and he says, you have a choice. You can choose me, or you can choose that tree. 
You can choose me or you can choose that website. You can choose me or you can choose that relationship. You can choose me or you can choose living together outside of marriage. You can choose me or you can choose that bottle. You can choose me or you can choose that pill. There's a choice. And God makes it this way from the very beginning. You pick up the story. If you have a Bible or a smartphone, turn to Genesis chapter 3. And I want you to see all of a sudden there's this choice put before mankind. And all of a sudden there's this enemy that shows up on the scene. And he's got an agenda. He has an objective. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Now all of a sudden you have to pause there because you've got a talking snake. It's not easy to believe in a talking snake, right? Some people have a hard time believing in a talking snake. I don't have a hard time believing in a talking snake, and here's why. Because I look up at the sky and I see the sun 93 million miles away, 865,000 miles thick, 1.3 million times bigger than the earth, has a temperature of 27 million degrees, and is just one of, of 100 billion stars in our galaxy. Now that's hard to believe. Once I can believe that, if there's a maker of the universe who made that, I think it'd be pretty easy for him to make a, take, a, a, a snake talk, don't you? I mean, it'd be no problem. <laughs> so I don't really have a really hard time believing that. Maybe some people do. Listen, everywhere you look, there's a miracle. We just take it for granted. We get used to it. Here's a talking snake. I believe it. Serpents more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God made. He says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, it's interesting, in the first two chapters of Genesis, everything's perfect, right? And all of a sudden, here's this talking snake questioning Eve about what God really said. He's trying to make her doubt. He's he's casting some doubt on the word of God. You You keep tracking the story. The woman says to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it, or you will die. And so you notice the woman's put in the position of remembering and defending what God said, and the serpent's trying to get her to doubt it. He goes even further as he carries on. The serpent says, you will not certainly die, the serpent says to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so now Satan just stops playing around. He just bold-faced calls God a liar. He accuses God of trying to manipulate the woman and her husband to keep them from becoming like him. In other words, he says, God's holding out on you. God's keeping something good from you. There is something better. Look, God says this, but this is better. Don't trust him. You can't trust him. He's not good. He's holding out on you. And at this point, the woman is faced with a choice. The serpent says, there is something more satisfying than God. The woman's faced with a choice. God's made promises. Now sin is making promises. And you do know the power of sin is always in what it promises, right? I mean, it always promises something. Something that you want. Something you desire. 
And it comes along and it makes these promises. And God makes promises as well. And here you are, you're faced with a choice. The power of sin isn't what it promises. Who will you believe? God makes promises, sin makes promises, choice is yours. Who will you trust? And this is the same problem we're faced with every day. Every day. Sin promises love, it promises beauty, it promises pleasure, it promises adventure. Who's telling the truth? Because God promises all the same things. You, You do realize that everything sin promises you, God also promises you. The reason is, is that Satan and his demons and sin itself can't create anything. All it can do is offer you things that God already made that have an appropriate use, right? Take sex as an example. Look, there's an appropriate use for it. God made it. Everything about it was his idea. He promises there is a way to enjoy it that's the fullest. The world promises the same thing. Who will you believe? When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. So all of a sudden, the woman's attracted to what the sin offers and she she sees it a certain way. It's, it's, It's good, it's pleasing, it's desirable. So she eats it. She gives some to her husband who's with her and he eats it. And that's kind of how men do sometimes. They just do whatever the woman says, right? Isn't that true? And the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they're naked, so they sew fig leaves together and make coverings for themselves. And all of a sudden, the, women, the woman and the man, they're looking for something. They believe the promise of sin, and they find it just doesn't deliver. They're immediately filled with shame, right? The woman and her husband believe the promises of sin instead of the promises of God. They sin against God, and their souls die that day. They trade God for a piece of fruit. They turn away from the spring of living water. They look for a drink someplace else. And we do the same thing every day. This is what's wrong with the world. This is what's wrong with us. Now, Satan hasn't changed his tactics for years. This is always the way he works. If you want to know what he's up to, this is it. He is in this to get you to doubt God and believe there's something better. If he can do that, he's got you. This is the game that he plays. But don't you wish sometimes that, that, that Satan still made himself as obvious as he... I mean, if he showed up as a talking snake, you'd be able to deal with it, right? I mean, there he was, you know, okay, talking snakes. I got that one. When, don't listen to talking snakes, right? That one's clear. What's not as clear is when he comes on the radio or on your television or when he's your next-door neighbor or your best friend and he, he's speaking through them, these lies, It's not as easy, right? I wish he would make himself more obvious. But there are some places in the world where he does make himself more obvious, and it's not necessarily easier. So what I want to do right now is I want to invite my friend Chad Doring to the stage. Chad, come on out. I think Chad's waiting to come see us here. Everybody give Chad a hand. All right, now, the reason I'm inviting Chad to the stage is Chad's got some pretty interesting stories to tell about some things he's experienced in other parts of the world. So, so Chad, you've been to Haiti several times. Uh, I know that... Uh, it's a passion of yours going there with rain catchers and, uh, you know, you've seen the way the people live. They have no clean drinking water and, and, and your, your soul's been kind of wrecked by that. And you go over there and you want to make a difference in the world and help these people. Uh, but you've told me some stories about some of the things you've experienced when you've gone there that are pretty crazy. Uh, one in particular you're going to share with us today. So why don't you tell us that story? Because this is, this is really unbelievable in some ways. 
All right, first, let me just preface, though, and say that uh, I am the least the devil is behind every door person you're ever going to meet in your life. In fact, the, the church that I was raised in, uh, literally, if you yawned, they would have escorted you out the front door for being too charismatic, okay? So know that, okay? And then number two, for me, uh, my brain, I, I have to be able to rationalize. I'm a see-to-believe person. I want physical proof of things. So anything that, I, that is, is, is unseen is really difficult for me to believe, uh, and I'll usually just chalk it up to a trick or a joke or Hollywood. So, okay, though all those things being said, um, I was in Haiti. Uh, it was my second trip ever going, and I've gone lots and lots of times for about 14 years now. But it was my second trip ever going, and uh, we were walking down a path, uh, to go install a rain catcher, and I was with Roro, the, the leader of the, of the group at the time, um, one of the most amazing godly men I've ever known. And we were walking uh, in the middle of this group, and uh, this man was coming from the opposite direction, dressed completely in street clothes, uh, and he just had himself uh, like little figurines around his neck, and then a couple of bones. Hmm. Okay, and as he walked by me, uh, no exaggeration. All of the hair, which is a lot, on my body stood up, okay? <laughs> Chills ran down my spine, and I, just, I was cold. I, I, I physically felt something move. And we got, I got about three steps into this, and Roro looked at me and said, did you feel that? And now my jaw literally hits the red clay dirt because, first of all, how do you know I felt anything, number one? But number two, this, I don't even know you. At this point, I didn't know Roro very well, so it was really a crazy question. And I looked at him obviously with my jaw on the floor, and he looked back at me, and he said, Chad, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, and what you just felt was the presence of pure evil. That man is our village witch doctor. So I'm starting to just kind of reel in, because uh, let's be honest, witch doctors, to us, it's Hollywood. It's a joke. It's, it's entertainment. It's whatever, right? We, uh, we don't. It, they jump around like monkeys and hoot and holler, right? That's what we see on the Discovery Channel. Um, so as we're walking together uh, to go set up our rain catcher, this man, who I'm now keeping my eyes on because I'm freaked out by him, uh, he parks himself uh, about 100 yards, a little bit less, from where we parked to, to set up this rain catcher. So I'm watching him out of the corner of my eye, just trying to figure out what, he, what he's doing. And uh, he begins to do all the things, like I just said, uh, that you would imagine of what you've seen a witch doctor to do. So in my head, I am chuckling inside. This, I'm like, this is ridiculous. Who is this guy? Why, why? A crowd had kind of gathered around him. I'm like, is there nothing else to do in this whole country but to watch this man <laughs> jump around like an idiot? This is, this is so silly. Um, but I'm still very intrigued by it all. Uh, about 15 minutes later, he finished up doing what he was doing. The crowd dissipated. And then about 10 to 15 minutes after they all left, we began to walk back down that same path uh, uh, to get back home. And now I had kind of fallen to the back of the group with Roro. The, the rest of the group was moving forward because I was just peppering them with questions because I was just so curious to know about voodoo and just, just that side of things because I've never experienced anything like it. And we get to the area uh, where that witch doctor was dancing and performing. And uh, no exaggeration whatsoever. The corn, when we walked by, was green and lush and full of life. When I got back there, my jaw hit the ground. Roro looked at me and said, in Haiti, uh, 
if your neighbors are jealous of the way your crops are performing, they will hire a witch doctor to come and curse your land. And what I was looking at, and I, I have, I to the, I'm sitting here right now trying to rationalize and explain it in my head because I, it makes no sense to me. But what I was looking at was the perfect property line. And so imagine a property line here in Michigan. It's, it's not straight lines. It's, it's jagged. The corn on this man's land was not, it, it wasn't burnt. It wasn't trampled. It was literally as if the life had been sucked out of it. You could crack the leaves and not even two inches late, further on either side, left and right of the neighbor's property, the corn was completely green, lush, beautiful, and vibrant and full of life. I sat there for probably 30 minutes trying to figure out what, what trick, what, what David Copperfield-like trick did this man do to, to try to convince people that he has power of some kind. And Roro, uh, in that process, looked at me, and he said, you know, uh, I know this is very hard for you to believe how powerful, the, he called him the prince of the air, how powerful the devil really is, and especially here in Haiti for a culture that, that believes in him. And I was like, man, I don't know how you could possibly live in a place like this. And Roro looked at me, and he said, oh, man, I don't know how you can live where you live. He said, in Haiti... At least I, I know exactly where he is. I see him. I, he's, he walks in broad daylight. He said, in the States, he's on your billboards. He's in your magazines. He's in your music. You invite him into your homes through your televisions. You, you, you endorse him through entertainment. He's like, man, I would far rather live here where I can see him than you. And, man, I have been uh, chewing on that truth, hmm. trying to swallow it for, for a yeah, really long time. It's now. interesting you know, here in this story, like, Satan's tricks are the same. Like, he's up to the same thing. He has the same goal, whether here or there. He's trying to get people to believe there's something better than God, right? He does it here. He does it there. I mean, over here, he's trying to get people to believe, hey, come to me. You'll get revenge. Come to me. You'll get, you know, prosperity. Your crops will work. You know, I will give you things that God won't. And it's the same thing there and here. He just works a little bit differently. It looks a little bit different. So, You've been there and you've been here, Chad, and you've seen it both places. What has this taught you? Yeah. I mean, again, one of the things that uh, Roro had said to me as in this process was, he said, Chad, you know, you're going to tell this story. You're going to recount it. You're going to go through. You're going to rationalize in your head. But you're going to tell this story to people. And two things are going to happen. They're either going to say that you're crazy or they're going to say he's way too super spiritual. And dismiss it as if it's a joke. He said, because that's what the devil does. He wants to convince everybody that he's not real in America. Here he wants to convince everybody that he is real, which is so interesting. Uh, But he said, Chad, you don't believe because you see. You'll begin to see because you believe. And that is so true to that. Because as I start to think about, for me and my journey, the closer I get to Christ, the more I begin to believe is when I begin to start to look at my life and start to purify it. I start to look at my music and say, Satan is all over this. I need to change it. I start to look at the shows that I choose to watch mm-hmm. and say, Satan is all over this. And not in a judgmental way, if you're watching a show that I don't care about. That's not, it's for me. It's God purifying me, and he begins to show me as I believe. So that's the biggest thing I've probably taken wow. from that. Chad, so, thanks for coming and sharing with you. us, man. That's thank you. an incredible story. Listen, here's what we have to, to grasp from all this. The battle is real. 
This is a very real battle. Look, Satan doesn't even want you to believe it's real. In America, it's easier for him when he's not so obvious. He can be much more subtle here. In Haiti, he wants them to know it's real. He wants to offer them something clear. They believe in him already. Here, we struggle, right, to even believe in the supernatural. So he operates differently, but the objective is the same At the end of the day, Satan has one clear objective. He wants you to look at God and to turn away and to pursue something else. And this is always his game. So the question is, how do we win? Because what we've got to understand is this really is life or death. Every day we are faced with choices. What will you choose? Will you choose God or will you choose something else? Whose promises will you trust? And your answer to that question really is a life or death answer. You walk away from God, your soul shrivels and it dies. So the question is, how do you win? And so this is what we really want to come around here as we we bring this to a close here is, how do you win? What does the win look like? And I want to show you 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. This is what it says. It says, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So how do you win? How do you overcome the world? It's very simple. Faith is the answer. You put your faith in Jesus as the one and only Son of God, who when you look at Jesus, you see the one who demonstrates God's love for you. That God sent Jesus into the world and God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And God has proven once and for all, he loves you, he wants what is best for you, he's the best of all possible options, follow him, listen to him, trust him, turn away from the lies and believe the truth. Faith is the answer. So here's the big idea of the entire message today. Fighting for faith is fighting to win. And this is what it's all about. Satan is a liar. He wants you to doubt God, he wants you to doubt everything about God. He wants you to doubt his word. He wants you to doubt his promises. He wants you to doubt his care for you. He wants you to doubt his goodness, his forgiveness, his love. And you and I need to fight against his lies. And the only way to fight is with truth. We fight to believe the truth. We fight to put our faith in Jesus. And that's the win. Winning at life and saving your soul is as easy and as hard as putting your faith in Jesus. It's as easy and as hard. This is what we are fighting for. We're fighting for our souls, which means we are fighting for faith. And so what really is faith at the end of the day? You know, if I'm saying that faith is the victory, if you want to win, have faith in Jesus. But what is faith? Faith is one of those words we kind of throw it around like we've lost really even what it means in many ways. This is a rich and deep and powerful and profound biblical word that we've kind of lost its meaning. I mean, we think of the word faith, and we think, are the Lions going to win tomorrow? I don't know. I have faith. Right? I mean, that is not what the Bible means when it talks about faith. The biblical idea of faith, it's this idea of confidence. It's that you you, you trust, you believe. I I think it really involves four things. I just want to unpack this for you for a minute. If you want to know what faith is, this is what you need to overcome the world is faith. Faith involves four things. I think if you track the Bible, you'll find this is true. Number one, faith means you believe. 
That's where it starts. You believe Jesus exists. Now, if there's anybody in the room that you doubt whether Jesus really exists, all you need to do is study history. Jesus is the most established figure of all of ancient history. He is an established fact. He really did live. He really was a human being who walked on the earth, performed miracles, died on a Roman cross, and is reported to have risen from the dead. You've got to get to the point where, number one, you just believe that he exists. But number two, you have to trust that he wants what is best. You have to trust that he tells the truth. You have to trust that he loves you and that he wants what's best for you. So you believe he exists, and then you trust him. That he really does tell the truth. But thirdly, once you believe he tells the truth, you got to get to the place where you depend on him. You trust that he loves you and wants what's best for you, and then you depend on him to give you what you need, what you're searching for in life. You really do believe he is the one, he is the answer, he is the way, and you depend on him. You put your life in his hands, and you follow him. But the fourth thing is the one that's the hardest. It's the one that really does require a miracle in your soul. You have to believe, you have to trust, you have to depend, but you have to treasure him. This is what the Bible means when it talks about being born again, where literally something inside of you comes alive. When you look at Jesus, something inside of you leaps and comes alive, and you look at Jesus and you see everything your heart longs for. Everything you desire. You see Jesus and you say, the love I search will come from him. The joy I want will come from him. The pleasure, the peace, the adventure I search for in life is going to come from him. He is the one who will satisfy my soul. And Jesus becomes the treasure of your life that nothing else compares to. The thing that you would be willing to give up everything to have him. This is what the battle is for. It's to come to the place in your life where you actually put your faith in Jesus. You believe, you trust, you depend, and you treasure him. When this happens in your life, you win. Now, it sounds easy, right? Have faith in Jesus. But it's not as easy as it sounds because the whole world is preaching a different story. Every place you look is telling you something else. Every song you listen to on the radio... It's telling you a different story. Every show you watch on television, every, every movie you watch is screaming a different message. Nobody's pointing you to Jesus in this world. Everything's pointing the other way because there is a prince of the power of the air. There is an enemy. The Bible calls him the God of this world and his whole agenda is to distract you and turn you from Jesus. I mean, it's more acceptable in this world to talk about Islam than it is to talk about Jesus. Doesn't that strike you as strange? There is an enemy of your soul who wants to destroy you, and he will if he can get you to look at Jesus and prefer something else. Jesus must be the treasure of your life. You must put your faith in him. Now, this is a fight every step of the way to ever be able to live this way. It's war. It's all-out war. The whole world is moving the other way. It requires what I call a wartime lifestyle. Fighting to win requires a wartime lifestyle. Here's our problem is that too many of us, we view life as a cruise ship. You know what a cruise ship is like, right? Anybody ever been on a cruise? I've been on a couple. 
cruise ship, everything's extravagant, everything's excess, everything's about comfort, everything's about just the aesthetics and enjoying things, right? Taking it easy, relax, sit in the sun, put your feet up. We view life as a cruise ship. When in reality, it's not a cruise ship at all. Life is a battleship. A battleship is completely different from a cruise ship. Everything on a battleship is armed for battle. Everything on a battleship, nobody sits unaware of what's going around. Everybody's watching. Everybody's waiting. Everybody's prepared. Everybody's ready for battle on a battleship. Even the silverware on a battleship can be melted down and turned into bullets. Life is not a cruise ship. Life is a battleship. We need a wartime lifestyle. And so I just want to give you four quick things of what this means. Very quickly. What does it mean to have a wartime lifestyle? To be prepared for the battle that we all fight. The battle for our souls. Number one, it requires an alert and a sober mind. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You have to be watching for the enemy to attack. You have to put on the helmet of salvation and protect your mind. You literally have to put your mind, you have to fill your mind with God's truth so you can spot the devil's lies. Like I said, everything in the world is trying to scream to you a different message. You have to be alert. You have to be aware. You must reject the lies of Satan every time you hear them. And you're going to hear them every day. You need to have your mind filled with God's truth. And you need to be sober-minded. There is no place for drugs or alcohol on a battleship in wartime. You don't ever want to dull your senses when you're in the middle of a battle. You dull your senses and slow your reflexes, you're a sitting duck. Listen, there are some of you in this room, you're, you're losing at life because you're dulling your senses with substances. There's no place for that when you're a soldier. You'll get beat up every time if you're playing around with those sort of things. We have a ministry called Renew that can help you get free. We need this. We need to be alert. We need to be sober-minded. We need discipline in our lives. It says everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. A soldier on a battleship goes into strict training, strict discipline. We have to train ourselves to fight. We have to know how to fight. We need to know how to put on our armor. We need to know how to use our weapon. Ephesians chapter 6 is all about the armor of God. We need to learn how to wear it. In order to have a wartime lifestyle, you need to know how to carry your weapon and use it the right way. God's given us one weapon for this fight and one weapon only. Look at what it says in Ephesians 6. It says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Listen, when Jesus was tempted by the devil on earth, he did one thing, and what was it? He quoted the word of God. That was his weapon. It's all you need. To replace the devil's lies, you need the truth of God. The only way to fight this fight is with God's word, the Bible. We've got to be people that fill our minds with God's truth and trust that the Bible is the sword of the spirit and prayer is the way to use it. We take this sword, God's word, and the way we use it is we we proclaim it, we speak it in faith to God in prayer. And when you do that, the devil flees. He tucks his tail and he runs. We learned it from Jesus. We see it over and over again. 
Those of us that have ever had a moment of victory in the spiritual life, we know this is how it worked. It is always putting God's word in your mind, trusting it, and speaking it to God in faith through prayer. This is the way to win the battle. And last but not least, one of my favorite parts of all this, just thinking about what this means, is that when you get knocked down, get back up. <laughs> it's going to happen. I, look, I, it's happened to me this week. It's probably happened to you this week. Anybody get knocked down a little bit this week? I have had a really difficult week. Ever since I agreed to, to give this message today on Monday, my whole bottom fell out of my week. I've had a really difficult week. I stand up here today a beaten, wounded soldier who's felt like I'd just been beat up this week. I'm going to tell you something. I've learned something this week, and I've learned it over and over again in my walk with God. When you get knocked down, get back up, because listen to this. If anybody does sin, if you have a moment where you take your eyes off Jesus, and you believe the devil's lies, and you get discouraged, and you fall, if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. <laughs> do, do you realize that when you fall, when you mess things up, when, when, when you get beat up and you lose a battle or two along the way, Satan's going to take you in that moment, he's going to continue the lies, and he can say, look at you. You've fallen. God no longer loves you. God's done with you. God's going to toss you aside. God won't forgive you. You're not good enough. And all of those are lies. Did you know that before you ever did any of the sins that you've committed in your life, that God sent Jesus into the world to die for you? Knowing all of the sins that you were yet to commit, none of them surprise him. None of them can stop him from forgiving you. There is nothing you can do to take yourself away from this love that God wants to offer you. The only thing you've got to do is come to him for it. Do you know in the moment of failure what faith looks like? Faith looks like when God says, come to me and I'll forgive you. If you confess your sins, I am faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I will wash it as far as the east is from the west. I will cast your sin into the sea of forgetfulness and remember it no more. So when you fall, what faith looks like is come to God for free forgiveness. No strings attached. He sent Jesus into the world to die for you, to save you, to forgive you. When you fall, get back up. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, not even the devil himself, when you come to him in faith. It's amazing what it looks like. Listen, life is war. The battle is for our souls. We have a choice to make. The choices are clear. There's God and there's everything else. What will you choose? This war that's going on in our lives is life or death. The fight for faith is the fight to win. Simple faith, simple trust. You need to look at Jesus and believe, trust, depend, and treasure him, and you will be set free, and you will win. I want to close just by reading a simple phrase from Jesus. I want you to hear this. This is how serious all this is. This is what Jesus says. He says, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Life is war. Life is a battleship, not a cruise ship. 
Fighting for faith is fighting to win. Don't lose. Win. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for everything that you promised to be for us. Thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for making us. Thank you for sending Jesus to save us. Thank you for giving us your word and your promises, Lord, to trust. Lord, I just pray that you would help us right now, Lord, to see clearly the choice that's before us. I pray for every single person in this room, Lord, that they would see you for who you are, that you are the spring of living water that wants to quench their thirst. Father, if there are people in this room today that have never come to you for a drink, I pray today would be the day. I pray they would come with their thirsty souls and they would come before you and they would kneel down and they would drink from the spring of living water, Lord, that they would drink of forgiveness. They would drink of mercy. They would drink of love. They would drink of peace. They would drink of joy. They would, they would drink of freedom, Lord. Help them to come to you today and find that you are the end of their search. You are the one that will quench their thirst. Let today be the day. I pray it in Jesus' name.